Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Micah Went. I help out with the college ministry here and occasionally some other things. Uh, and just really grateful you're here. I know how intimidating and scary coming to a church can be the first time or the second time or the tenth time or the hundredth time. So uh, good on you for coming. <laughs> Uh, and you came on a good day because we've got a really fun passage and a really simple passage today in John chapter 4. Uh, if you've been a part of a church for a long time, you've probably heard two dozen sermons on the first half of chapter 4, uh, the woman at the well and Jesus in Samaria. I bet you haven't heard many on the last half of chapter 4 because I sure hadn't before this week. Uh, It's simple enough and fun enough that um, if you remember, Andrew, Andrew, and Amanda acted out the Christmas story at our Christmas Eve uh, celebration. I asked them to come and act out this story as well, and they collectively said, talk to their agent. Uh, So I'm working on that for maybe a little bit further along in John. Um, But today, we're in John chapter 4, verse 43 is where we're starting. So let me read that for us. says, after the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Uh, If you remember a couple of months ago, we taught the story of Jesus turning water into wine. That's the feast that they're talking about here. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So a really simple story, right? Let me summarize it. A desperate man seeks out Jesus asking for a miracle. And because Jesus heals this man's son, this official and his whole household come to true and saving faith in Jesus. This story is really answering a pretty simple question that probably hits at the heart of all of us. Uh, what do we do when we're desperate? It might help to try and put ourselves in those shoes right now. Um, think about your life. I've prayed for a lot of sick children in this church. I know we're not too far away from that. I know a lot of us are wrestling with how to care for sick and aging parents. Uh, This week I had two conversations about addiction, another one about suicide ideation. I work in the college sphere, so I talk about finances a lot. We're not that far removed from asking what do we do when we're desperate. And that's the first topic we're going to talk about today, desperation. And the second is explaining what this story means because John calls it a sign. 
And if you remember a couple months ago when we preached the first sign, Jesus turning water into wine, we said that signs aren't just cheap tricks or miracles that are meant to impress the masses. They have purpose. Signs are meant to teach us that Jesus is the Son of God and that we can have life, eternal life in his name. So those are going to be the two things we're talking about today, desperation and how to have life in Jesus' name. So I want to break this down for us. We're going to talk about the official, the hometown, and what it means to us. So here's the first bit, the official, who he is. Maybe you'll find something to relate to in his story. This word official means that he's a part of the government, specifically a king's government. And the king at this time is Herod. And we know a lot about him. As we read more in the story of John, we'll see that this is the Herod who beheads John the Baptist and who's partially responsible for crucifying Jesus. And we know a lot more about him from the history books as well. And everything about him says this is not a good guy. King Herod's a bad guy, which means his government is a bad government. None of this is good, and this official is attached to this government somehow. You know what that makes him? a bad guy. At least that's how the original readers of this story would have read this. Here's what people would have thought. Uh, This guy is undeserving of Jesus's grace and Jesus's time. So that's who he is and this is what he wants, his dying son to be healed. I don't want you to miss the desperation here. This guy isn't a Jesus follower, at least not yet. He's just a desperate father who works for an evil regime, and all he wants is for his son to be healed. And I'm betting that finding Jesus, the traveling miracle worker, was not plan A in his mind. This guy traveled from Capernaum to Cana. That's a 25-mile overnight trip. Just think about walking the 25 miles overnight or maybe riding on a pony or a horse or whatever he might have. What's he thinking? What, he's, what is he praying? What's his plan to find Jesus? And then what's he going to say to this guy when he does find him? Here's this guy seeking out Jesus, and he's an official in the government, which means he's probably powerful, and he's probably got money, and he's probably got connections at the highest levels, which means he's got connections to the best physicians. And if he has all those things, I can guarantee that he's tried all those things. He's probably seen the doctors, he's spent the money, and he's gotten to this point of desperation where all he can say is, I've heard there's a traveling miracle worker, maybe this guy can help me. Don't miss this, okay? This official doesn't approach Jesus out of confidence that Jesus is the son of God. He's heard that Jesus can perform miracles and he's grasping. You know what we call that? Desperation, when you have no other options. So this guy gets in front of Jesus in verse 47. He asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Just put yourself in the story here. I know a lot of you don't even have to imagine what desperation feels like. You're either in it right now or you felt it in the past. I don't want you to miss this, okay? This, this man isn't coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have a sin problem, please forgive me. He's saying, Jesus, I have a health problem, please fix it. And you know what? That's okay. 
It's okay to bring your desperation to Jesus. Even if you don't quite know who he is or what he's all about, you don't have to know every nuance of theology and doctrine to simply come to Jesus and ask him for help. Jesus doesn't turn this guy away. He listens to him and he responds. And the same is true when we come to him. You don't have to get your life in order. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to quit working for the King Herods or the evil governments of the time. You can simply come to Jesus just like this official did, lowly and humble and desperate in asking. So here's what happens. This guy goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please come with me and heal my son. And Jesus says something kind of jarring that doesn't seem like it fits the story. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I bet that's not what the official wanted to hear. When I'm reading the Bible, when I'm preparing a sermon, one of the questions I ask is what's unexpected and what doesn't fit? Because that's usually a pretty important thing to look at. This is pretty unexpected and it doesn't quite fit. We're going to talk about what this means in a minute, but uh, this isn't what the official wants to hear, right? He comes humble, he comes lowly, he comes desperate, he says, Jesus, please heal my son. And he gets this kind of accusatory statement. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And you know how this guy replies? He completely ignores it. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. I want you to note the desperation here. Uh, he's not trying to argue with Jesus. He's not getting into a, a debate. He's not trying to justify himself or argue doctrinal points. He just says it again. Please come and heal my son. So what's going on here? I want to talk about the hometown. Because actually a better way to read verse 48 is this. Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. There's like a Texas translation version of the Bible floating around there that has the y'all in it. Uh, that would be really helpful sometimes when we are, when Jesus is speaking to a crowd and not just an individual. Because Jesus is kind of speaking to this official, but even more than that, he's addressing everybody in Galilee. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Go back up to verses 43, 44, and 45. Jesus has just departed Samaria, and he's in Galilee. He's basically in his home county. And it says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. These are the people that saw Jesus grow up. They know his mom. They know his brothers and sisters. They've seen him his whole life, and they have trouble honoring him. It says here in verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And why did they welcome him? They saw his miracles at the feast. They heard about his power. They've heard about his miracles. And that's what they're interested in. It says earlier in John, John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. There's something about this nearness to Jesus that makes these people miss who he really is. They're interested in the miracles, they're interested in the wonders, but they're not interested in Jesus as their savior. So it really doesn't seem like Jesus is criticizing this official, but he's saying something pretty pointed to the people in his hometown, to the people of Galilee. 
So let me say it this way. Uh, There is a kind of belief that isn't true saving belief. Uh, Here, Jesus is talking about those who believe in him and welcome him as a miracle worker, but not as the Messiah, not as the one who has the power to forgive sins. These are people who love the power of God, but they don't love God. So maybe a broader way to say it is this. Uh, There's a type of belief that loves the evidence of God, but doesn't love God. Maybe you believe in the power of God. Maybe you believe that God can answer prayers and intervene supernaturally and perform miracles, but you don't believe in Jesus as your Savior. You love the power of God, but you don't love God. Or maybe you love the church community around you. You've got a couple of Christians that love you really, really well. And you love the feeling you get on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night at college or a Wednesday night at middle school or high school. But you don't believe what everyone around you believes about sin and your desperate need for forgiveness. You love God's people, but you may not love God. If you were here uh, in the last couple of months, we've been preaching through John chapter 4, Jesus in Samaria. And Kevin last week did the last few verses there where it said that many people come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And they believe because of this woman's testimony and they believe because of Jesus' own words. Jesus doesn't see fruit like that hardly ever. He doesn't see that in Judea and Galilee. He saw that in Samaria. And Samaria is full of people that hate Galileans and vice versa. It's not the people that grew up around Jesus that saw him for who he was. It was the hated outsider and this unknown official of an evil government that come to see Jesus as the savior of the world. It's not the hometown that believes in Jesus. At least not yet. And I know that none of us are from Jesus' hometown, but we can have that same attitude that misses Jesus. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there were just two things that came to mind when I was thinking about why we have this attitude that misses Jesus. And that's entitlement and over-familiarity. There's this really famous parable, you might have heard of it, uh, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. And the older brother misses the relationship with the father because of entitlement. And at the end of that story, he says, Father, look at everything I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished, and I've always been here. I deserve more from you. We can fall into that the same way. We can catch ourselves thinking that we deserve things from God because of a nearness to him. And when we do that, we've lost sight of grace. That God is good to us, not because we deserve it, but simply because he loves us. That God the Father crushed his son Jesus, not because we deserved it, but because of his grace, the love and the mercy he has for us despite all that we've done. We can miss him because of entitlement and we can miss him because of over-familiarity. The people in Jesus' hometown, like I said, they knew his mom, they knew his brothers and sisters, they knew him from a young age. Now, we don't know that, but if you grew up in a church, if you grew up in a church environment, you might know the Bible, you might know the doctrine and theology of Christianity, you might have been hearing about grace and mercy and crucifixion and resurrection your whole life. And when that's the case, it could be really easy to intellectually agree with everything that Christianity says, 
but never desperately seek Jesus for yourself. It can be really easy to take prayer for granted when your whole life you've heard that God hears and responds to you. And you might not understand how incredible it is that the powerful, eternal God of the universe cares about your slightest fears and thoughts. We got to be so watchful for entitlement and over-familiarity in our lives because it's the people who know the most about Jesus who missed him in this story. We want to come just like this official comes, low and desperate and humble, the correct posture and the correct response to Jesus, and that's to believe what Jesus says. Turn back to verse 50. What does it say? The official said to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Go is a command. Your son will live is a promise. And what does the official do? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is the definition of faith encountering Jesus and believing his promises so much that you act on them. This official didn't insist on his own way. At the beginning of the story, he wants Jesus to come back with him. And Jesus does it. And he doesn't make demands of him. He simply comes low and desperate and humble. And he believed the initial promise that Jesus gave to him. Go back home. Your son will live. And we read the rest of the story. We know what happens, right? Not only did this man believe the initial promise he made, But this son was healed the moment Jesus said, your son will live in the seventh hour. And because of that, we get this. The official himself believed him and all his household. This is a different type of belief than we see in the beginning of the story. And it's certainly a different type of belief than the Galileans and the people in the hometown have. So let me explain this because there's a couple different categories here and you might fall into one of them. You could be like the official at the beginning of the story. Maybe you don't know a lot about Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're far away from him or even an enemy of him. But do you know him well enough to believe that he's powerful and that he's capable of miracles and that he's gracious and kind to desperate people? There's another category. You might have belief similar to the hometown. Maybe you're so familiar with the story and you're so familiar with God's power and God's people that Jesus just doesn't seem awe-inspiring to you. Do you find yourself believing in the evidence of God but somehow missing the worship of Jesus as Savior? And maybe you're the official at the end of the story. Somehow you've encountered Jesus through prayer, through a conversation with Christians, through a sermon just like this or a worship song that we sing. And what started as maybe simple belief in something about Jesus has blossomed into full belief in everything that Jesus says. Are you the official at the beginning of the story? Are you the hometown? Are you the official in his household at the end? Maybe you're none of these people. Maybe you don't know enough about Jesus to even know to go to him when you're desperate and to trust that he cares about desperate people. Maybe your step is you simply need to learn more about Jesus before you start to trust him. Wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus or your trust in him, uh, honestly, the answer is really similar. It's always the same. 
Jesus is gracious enough and powerful enough to meet you wherever you are. Here's the picture we get of Jesus in the gospel. He's the one who meets people wherever they're at. And he leads them from small belief in something he says to full saving eternal belief in everything he says. Do you see that in this official story? This desperation led this guy to Jesus and he believed the initial promise that Jesus made to him, which ultimately leads him to believe in everything that Jesus promises. This vague, impersonal faith in Jesus' power becomes specific, impersonal faith in Jesus as Savior. And this is my story. You know, I came to faith when I was 21. That was uh, August of 2012. And here's what happened. Uh, I started reading a Bible in February of that year. So by the time August rolled around, I had a pretty good idea of who Jesus was. I'd read the stories, I knew the doctrine, I knew that Jesus was the Son of God that died on a cross for my sin. And you know what I thought? Who cares? I was just not interested in theology and doctrine at the time. That came much later. You know what I really cared about? Camel spiders. I was in Afghanistan at the time, uh, and I thought about putting a picture of a camel spider up here, but then I thought, like... Nobody needs a 20-foot spider to start their week. So let me just describe this to you, okay? Uh, camel spiders are about dinner size, plate size. Uh, they run about five to eight miles an hour, and they chase you because they want to stand in the shade you make in the desert. Even worse than that, when you sleep on the ground every day, like I did, uh, the camel spiders try and crawl up to you and like cuddle into your heat and warmth. This was the only thing I cared about that year, all right? And every night, I would pray to God, and I would just say, God, I don't care about the bullets or the mortars or the rockets or the lack of food or really anything. I just care about the camel spiders. Would you please protect me? I don't want to wake up with a camel spider on my face. That was it. So this morning rolled around. Unbeknownst to me, my buddies had woken up before me and caught the biggest camel spider they could find and threw it on me when I was sleeping. I thought it was going to be real funny. I don't remember any of that because I woke up and I walked over to the truck and they were like, yeah, man, we woke up early. We caught this camel spider. We thought it was going to be hilarious. We threw it on you. And all of a sudden, this bird came out of nowhere and ate this spider and took off. <laughs> and they were like, can you believe that? And I was like, yes, I believe that. <laughs> and that was the moment I came to faith. <laughs> you know why? It's not because the doctrine of Christianity was really sweet to me. That came later. It was because it was in that moment that I realized Jesus cares about me personally. And he didn't just die for the sins of the world and he wasn't just this guy who lived 2,000 years ago. He's the guy who heard my prayers and answered my most desperate needs to protect me from spiders. If you're not convinced of everything Christianity is and everything Christianity believes, simply pray that Jesus meets you where you're at. You don't have to have it all figured out. It doesn't all have to make sense of you for you to simply come to Jesus in your desperation and your need and ask him to help. And we miss that. Especially in a church like this that values doctrine and theology so highly. I love that about us. 
But I think sometimes it hinders us from sharing faith with people. When we think that we gotta have all the answers, we think we gotta do the God-man Christ response with the bridge and the cross and everything we've learned and trainings and equippings and it's just not always that way. You can simply invite desperate people to go to Jesus and say, hey, I, I really think Jesus can help you with this. Why don't we pray? Jesus can meet anyone wherever they're at. He's the one who leads people from small faith in something, he says, to full and saving faith in everything, he says, just like this official in this household. And I'm confident in saying that the faith that this official in his household has at the end of the story is true and saving faith because John says this is a sign, the second sign of Jesus. Now, we haven't put these verses up in a while, so let me read this to you. John chapter 20. This is the reason John is writing this book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The signs in John have purpose to lead people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. And the signs the reason for the signs is belief. John chapter two, Jesus turns the water into wine. What happens? The disciples believe in him. And here in John chapter four, the official son is healed. And what happens? The official and his whole household believe in Jesus. So what does this sign have to teach us? The first sign, water into wine, had a lot to teach us about eternal feasting with God. The never-ending happy ending, if you remember that one. So here's the question. What does this second sign have to teach us? Four things. And if you know anything about me, you know I hate making lists that are more than like two things long. But here we are. First, number one, Jesus is gracious and he's powerful. Think about this story. Jesus heals the son of a man he's never met who doesn't want anything more from him than the healing of his son, who works for King Herod, this evil government. And Jesus still heals his son. You know what that's called? Grace. Undeserved blessing, undeserved favor and goodness. And along that, Jesus is powerful. He immediately heals this boy at a distance, at a word. He changes this boy's life. Jesus is gracious and he's powerful. He's merciful and he's mighty. Jesus is able and willing to meet you in your desperation. And you can just come to him just like this official. Come lowly, come humble, come desperate and believe what he tells you. And that's number two. The promises Jesus makes are for you. Jesus has promised that your sins are forgiven through faith in his death and resurrection is certain and guaranteed. Let me start with this. Um, it would be a mistake if what we walked, with, walked away with today is Jesus always answers desperate prayers the way we want. It would be a mistake to say that Jesus always heals the sick. Jesus doesn't promise that. He doesn't always heal. In fact, in the next chapter, there's this huge multitude of sick and paralyzed people, and Jesus only heals one of them. 
However, what Jesus promises is greater than simply healing in this life. It's forgiveness of sins and eternity with him to everyone who believes. The invitation that Jesus holds out is to believe in his death and resurrection and receive forgiveness of sins and eternity with God. Here's what's promised and guaranteed to you. Romans chapter 5 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only does Jesus love his enemies enough to heal their six sons, he loves them enough to die for them. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us so that through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, we could be reconciled to God for eternity. The greatest miracle that Jesus performed for this official and his son was not the miraculous healing of a sick boy. You know what it was? It was 15 chapters from now when he dies on a cross to pay for their sin. And his supernatural resurrection from the death proves that his promises are true. The same promise that your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is offered to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the promise. That's the guarantee. As sure and as trustworthy as Jesus has promised to heal this man's son. And here's another promise. If you have faith in Jesus, when you pray for healing, the answer is never no. It's not yet. Let me tell you what that means. Uh, John writes another book, Revelation, at the end of the Bible, describing what eternity with God is going to be like. And he says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's not an overstatement. For those who believe we will be without death and without disease. The final promise of no death and no sickness and no sorrow is guaranteed. I really enjoy politics. By that I mean I really enjoy reading about politics. Uh, and if you have been reading the news at all, you've probably heard of this guy, George Santos. Uh, he was just elected to the House of Representatives in New York. And what's come out in the last month is that he's lied about pretty much every aspect of his life. He lied about his education, his work history, his ethnicity. Uh, he lied about most likely his finances and his work with nonprofits. The list just goes on and on and on. And this week, I read this article written to the guy who lost to George Santos. And he wrote about how angry he is and how he wants justice for himself and for his constituents, and rightly so. Uh, but he ends with this quote from this movie that really piqued my interest. Uh, the movie is called The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Uh, I don't endorse it because I didn't watch it, and I'm not planning to because it sounds really boring. Uh, but <laughs> I really like the quote. He said, everything will be all right in the end. So if it's not all right, then it's not yet the end. 
We aren't promised to be rid of sickness and sorrow and death in this life. There's a reality of the brokenness of the world that we just simply can't escape. But we are promised that for those of us who have faith in Jesus, it will be perfect in the end. So if it's not yet perfect, it's not yet the end. What we are promised is eternal healing and eternal and perfect relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Which leaves us with a question, what if he doesn't heal? And there's going to be a lot of passages in John that uh, actually hit this question a little more than today. But um, I want to say this, God can heal. But we never should say that he must. Death and sickness and injury are consequences of the fall. And God does heal. Any and all healing comes from him. And we should ask for it and we should hope for it and know that right now it's not fully promised. And that can be hard to hear when you're sick or when someone you love is sick. When you're struggling with an addiction or a promise that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. It's easy to start to distrust God. It's easy to start to believe that maybe his promises aren't true and maybe he's not as trustworthy and loving and gracious and powerful as we've heard. And I want you to hold on to this. We are promised an eternity with Jesus, free of the brokenness of sin, which means if you have faith in Jesus, your prayer for healing is never no. It's simply not yet. And finally, the last thing to walk away with today, Jesus still meets desperate people and he still heals. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. He's still the same gracious and powerful God who can heal those who ask. And you know what that means? It means we pray for healing and we believe that God heals. And we pray for the desperate and we believe that God meets them. And we don't demand anything that he hasn't already promised. But we appeal to Jesus' mercy just like this official did. We pray for the mercy of Jesus to heal us and we rest in the guarantees of his promise. The guarantees of his love for you, the guarantees of the promise of forgiveness of sins and faith, his promise of never-ending eternal relationship and confidence in an eternal life with him free of desperation and free of despair. So the answer today and the application for all of us is to pray desperate prayers. You can bring your desperation to Jesus and you can bring desperate people to Jesus and trust that he can meet them. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all nuanced in your head. You can simply come low and come humble and pray desperately to Jesus and you can rest in his promises. This week, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray for the desperate people in your life that you want to come to see Jesus. And finally, because I can never be up here without talking about college, I want you to pray about desperate college students. So the spring semester starts on Tuesday. And this is my sixth year doing college ministry in one capacity or another. Um, When you do college ministry for that long, you start to see some of the patterns and the trends. Uh, And here's the pattern desperate college kids come to church the first two weeks of spring semester. Because here's what happens. You get a lot of students that come to school in the fall and they know that they should go to church. They know they should find a ministry and they don't. 
and they have a really bad first semester or they have a really bad Christmas break and they reach the end of themselves by the time they come back to school and they say, I'm desperate and I need a change and I hear that churches help people. So this week, as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for those in our spheres of influence, would we pray for students as well?